Verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. I charge you, in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden forever. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their services are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. Thank you very much, Rachel, and uh, good morning, everybody. Um, great to see you. Uh, well done for making it this morning. There's plenty of people who uh, haven't made it. Um, there's a lot of bugs going around. There's lots of people with COVID, uh, quite a few families away. Uh, so hello to those uh, viewing at home or catching up later, um, but a, a very warm welcome to you uh, here this morning. And uh, if you keep that uh, passage open, you'll see, as uh, Joe has already reminded us, that uh, we're coming over these next three weeks towards the conclusion to Paul's letter to Timothy. And it can feel, at first glance, like a kind of disjointed uh, collection of bits and pieces of advice that he wanted to squeeze into the letter. You know, it's as if he's kind of running out of parchment, and these are the last things he wants to squeeze in. Uh, so we've got elders, we've got slaves, we've got some mysterious business about sin next week, money. And then occasional, uh, he occasionally just throws in a random piece of advice about drinking water and wine. It can feel a little bit like a letter an anxious mother might send to her son or daughter, maybe at the end of the first week at university. So the letter begins with some family news. She asks, how are you getting on? And then at the end, she sprays out a load of reminders in no particular order. Don't forget to do your washing, take your vitamin tablets, get an early night, set an alarm clock for the first lecture, oh, and don't forget grandma's birthday, that kind of thing. But I think we know Paul well enough, and we know the Bible well enough, to know that that is a mistake, to think like that. The Bible is much, much better than that. Paul is much, much cleverer than that. Actually... It is now that he is getting down to the real reason he wrote. 
Everything he said so far has been consciously and carefully leading to this conclusion. This really is the business of the letter. And therefore, if we miss this, uh, we miss it all. And if you think about it, that's equally true of the mother's letter to the student, isn't it? Uh, those business matters at the end probably are the real reason she wrote, aren't they? That's what was on her mind all along. But to understand why Paul reaches this conclusion, to understand why he says what he says here, we really need to take a step back and review the whole letter and kind of work out why he put pen to paper in the first place. And this has been a kind of a, a, a gradual, cumulative sort of learning exercise for us as a church as we've gone through the letter. So here is what I think is on Paul's mind as we come to this chapter. I think we've seen four major concerns building through the letter. And most of these can be seen in what we've been calling the kind of the heartbeat of the letter, that passage that Joe mentioned earlier, 3.14 to 16. Let me mention these four major concerns. First, Paul wants us to think of the church to which we belong as family. So if you glance back at 3.15, you'll see he calls the church God's household, which means God's family. The church is God's family, and if we belong to a church, then this is our family. Now that might uh, be fairly familiar stuff to many of us, but it, it's not how everybody thinks about church. Uh, some people think of church as a kind of performance experience, like a theatre. You turn up at a set time, um, the people up front do their stuff, you enjoy it, consume it, judge it, maybe critique it, and then you come back next time if you want more. That's how some people think about church. It's kind of a, a kind of a theatrical experience. Others think of church more like a club. Uh, you sign up just like you would a, a gym or a sports club. You pay your fees. You get involved as much or as little as you want, as and when it suits you. Uh, but when it's not convenient or it doesn't work or the club is going in a different direction to what you are, then you leave and you join another one. But Paul says that the church you belong to is your spiritual family. And that means it has a similar kind of sense of belonging, of ownership, of mutual responsibility, and even affection as your biological family. You can't just come and go as it suits you. That's not right. It's not a performance. You don't consume. You contribute. It's family. I had two conversations with people this week from other churches uh, one was telling me about their new building. They were very, very positive about it. They were very positive about the church, but I couldn't help noticing when they spoke about the church and the decisions the church was making, they kept using the pronoun they. I thought that was quite revealing. The other person I spoke to was sad about some of the things happening in their church. They were actually hurt by some of the things happening, but they kept using the pronoun we. I think those pronouns are very revealing, aren't they? Church is family. That is why Paul's second concern is that human relationships within the church should be properly ordered. If you glance back at 3.15 again, this is what he means by right conduct within the household. And knowing how to conduct ourselves in God's household, we should know this by now at this point in the series, is not about knowing the sort of behavior as you come into the church meeting. It's not sort of knowing when to stand up and sit down and where to put your Bibles and all those kinds of things. It's about relationships. It's about how the church family relates to each other, how people of different sexes relate to each other, 
different ages, different situations, positions in life, how we should treat each other. So we've seen that over the last couple of weeks, uh, 4 verse 12, how the older are to re- regard the younger, or 5, 1 to 2, how the younger are to treat the older, how, for example, a man like Timothy is to behave around younger women, how the whole church are to treat widows of various kinds. So if church is your family, and Paul wants the relationships to be ordered, it's no surprise that each of those relationships are modeled on the biological family. Did you notice that last week in 5, 1 to 2? Treat older men in the church family as fathers. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters and so on. In other words, treat people in the church family with exactly the same level of respect, affection and boundaries that you would members of your biological family. Being a Christian does not exempt you from the created order or even the normal social order. Indeed, it makes it all the more important that that order is respected. So far then, Paul's concern is to think of church as family. And his second concern is to get relationships within the church family right. And that is because of his third concern is the reputation of the church within the world, the reputation of the church in the world. See, if we go right back to the beginning, we'll see that God's salvation plan is about restoration, the perfect restoration and reordering of life under Christ. We get there by being reconciled to God and then to each other. It's a wonderful hope, isn't it, that God one day is going to reorder this world. But how is the world going to get a picture of this future situation? It's so hard to imagine because we've got so accustomed to the brokenness of this world. See, imagine if you're somebody living in Kiev in the Ukraine at this time and your city has been destroyed. Well, you can remember what it was like when the city was ordered, when the houses were still standing, when the trees still had leaves on them when there were fountains and children playing and laughing in the streets. You can remember that. But we can't remember a world like that. We've never experienced that kind of order and perfection in our world. How is the world to imagine a time and a place where death and disorder have no place? Well, amazingly, shockingly, surprisingly, the answer is by looking at the ordinary local church with all its flaws and its fallibilities. It is the brilliant, ordinary, ordered local church, Paul says, that is the pillar and foundation of the truth, holding out to the world, through the gospel, that future salvation plan, and giving a little imperfect but real glimpse of what that will be like. That's why we've said the the church is the carpet sample of what God is planning for the new creation. And this brings us to the fourth concern. Paul's first concern is think of church as family. Secondly, get the relationships right. Because thirdly, the church is providing a glimpse of the future to the world. And fourthly, and here is the thing. All of this is being played out in the context of a fierce, cosmic, spiritual battle in which everything is at stake and in which the church is being opposed and bombarded by a relentless, merciless, and powerful enemy. See, 
Do you remember last week? What did Joe show us? We talked about widows. Do you remember, if you were here, why does it matter that widows are cared for in a particular way? Well, we might say because it's the right thing to do, because it's loving, because it's kind. Paul doesn't say any of those reasons. That's not the reason Paul gives. Have a look back at 5 verse 7. Widows must be cared for so that no one is open to blame. Who's doing the blaming? Well, the blame language in the Bible is satanic. It's the devil, the great accuser, who is blaming. Why does Paul want younger widows to marry and manage their homes? Is it because he just wants them off his back? He doesn't want all this gossiping in church. Well, look at 5.14. To give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Who is the enemy? Verse 15, Satan. And look ahead to 6 verse 1, where we'll, we'll get to in, uh, in a little while. He wants slaves to honor their masters so that God and the gospel might not be slandered. Who is doing the slandering? But the world, and behind the world, the devil. And interestingly, if you just read through the letter, you'll see that Paul never lets Timothy forget this. No matter what he's talking about, no matter how practical the matter, he never wants Timothy to forget the stakes are very, very high, and this is a spiritual battle, and we do have an enemy. Well, let me uh, try and summarize it like this. I hope uh, this, uh, this kind of uh, idea is helpful, and uh, this diagram might uh, help us as well. Here we are. God has placed us in his world as human beings. We are creatures as well as Christians. Remember, the false teachers were saying something slightly differently. They were saying food and marriage and the messy business of parenting is, is actually unspiritual. It's not good enough for the Christian. We're exempt from ordinary life and the grinding work of slavery as well. But Paul is saying, no, we are human. We're creatures <clears throat> as well as Christians. That is how we're going to serve God in the world. But we serve God in the world through a series of concentric circles. So we serve God through families. Children are raised, and it's a messy business. Households are well-managed. Elderly parents cared for. We serve God through families. And as we do that, we're not doing that with some kind of individualistic Western conception of the nuclear family, but we're doing it as part of a church family. So the church family is made up of households and families. And as we do ordinary life in that way, the world is watching seeing how the gospel has changed us. And then behind that world is the spiritual uh, reality, the angels cheering us on invisibly, and the enemies wanting us to fail. And you know what this means? This means that the extraordinary business of God's mission, that eternal business of furthering God's purposes in the world, of making God known, of speaking his word, is done in the midst of the ordinariness of life. It's done in the midst of the ordinariness of life. I think I was telling the students, I'm sorry if you've heard this before, of a famous letter that the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Anselm, 10th, 11th century Archbishop, wrote to a good friend uh, when his wife and children all died of a plague. Now, if you were a good friend and your, wife, uh, your friend's wife and children have all died of a plague, you would probably pen a letter that went something Along these lines, I'm so sorry to hear that your wife and children have died. That must be absolutely terrible for you. I'm thinking about you and praying for you. I'm so, so sorry. That is not what Anselm wrote to his friend. 
He said, I'm absolutely thrilled for you. Congratulations. Your wife and children have died. This is the best news possible because it means now you can join a monastery and you can really get down to the serious business of being Christian. It's a true story. But Paul and the New Testament say something completely differently. They say, actually, we serve God through the normal circles of life, through the ordinariness of life. And there's no trade-off. We don't have to trade off being a husband or wife with being a parent. We serve our children by being the best spouses we can. Looking after elderly relatives and widows is not a distraction from your Christian ministry. It is your ministry. Being a well-ordered family is not in competition with the demands of the church. This is how you serve the church. And as we'll see, being a faithful accountant, student, plumber, is not in a separate compartment from your life as a Christian. It is your life as a Christian. Because when the world sees you in the workplace, they see these circles, they see the whole church. And therefore, what is the best way we can serve the world as a church? Not by compromising the truth to fit in with the world, but being distinctive. We work through those circles, not in spite of them. And what this means if you're not a convinced Christian this morning, is that you're in exactly the right place. To listen to the word, because you're not going to hear it anywhere else. And to watch, to watch the imperfect reordering of life that God is doing among us. So if all of that is a lot to take in, let me just sum it up with this phrase, that we get to be human with heaven watching. That's what this passage is about. That's what 1 Timothy is about, really. We get to be human doing normal things in the ordinariness of life with heaven watching because we're building God's kingdom and his future in this way. Well, I hope that's helpful. It's a longer than usual introduction, but I hope it gives us a handle on what we've seen so far. And I think this is what's on Paul's mind now as he comes to these apparently disparate subjects of elders and slaves. Well, they may be not that disparate and appointing people to leadership position and so on. So let's look at it under the three headings you'll see on the sheet. And uh, just so we can sort of pace ourselves, I am going to spend the longest time on the first point. Protecting gospel teaching. Look again with me then at verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Now, the word elder simply means an older man. The word has already been used in verse 1 for exactly that purpose, to talk about older men. But throughout Paul's letters and Acts, the word is also used to describe a particular group of older men in each church with responsibility for what he calls their directing, or you could translate it as ruling the church. Paul uses the word elders interchangeably with the word overseer, which we saw in 3 verse 1. So the normal pattern in the New Testament in terms of church leadership is not kind of one man leading or a kind of a three-tier leadership of kind of bishops and so forth, but the normal pattern is this group of men who he calls elders or sometimes calls overseers, some of whom will be set apart for the work of preaching and teaching. 
So that's what we've got on view here in verse 17 and 18. But it's also worth asking why. Why does Paul talk about this subject here? Why turn to the subject of leadership at this point in the letter? Well, I think the context gives us two important reasons. Firstly, think about what Paul has just been saying in the previous chapter. The care of widows. I want you just to think about how controversial that would be. Some widows deserve care, we saw. Some didn't deserve care. Some, quite frankly, ought to stop gossiping and get married. Some families ought to jolly well pull their fingers out and care for their elderly relatives and stop sponging off the church. When it's put like that, can you see how divisive an issue this could have become? With accusations of favoritism, partiality, neglect, gullibility, freely flying around... How easy would it be for a church to implode by the poor handling of an issue like that? In fact, this had happened before. In Acts 6, this very same subject of the care of widows had almost caused the church to implode. And actually, if we're realistic, people being people, families being families, sinners being sinners, actually, that kind of trouble is never far away under the surface of any church. So that's the first reason Paul is now talking about leadership. That kind of issue needs careful handling for the church to flourish. The second reason now takes us to next week's passage. And as we'll see next time, Paul is talking about false teachers in the church. And it seems that the false teachers are almost certainly some of the elders. If you think about it, they would have to be, wouldn't they? If they were in influential teaching positions, they would have to be elders. And so, chapter 5, you've got the contentious issue of widows. Chapter 6, you've got the false teachers. And for both these reasons, Paul knows that one of the pressing needs of this church is that they have quality leaders. Leaders who can lead steadily through a crisis. Leaders who are church leaders, not cult leaders. That is, they're all out for the health of the church, not their own popularity. Leaders who lead not with their own authority, but the authority of Jesus by teaching the truth. Leaders who will stay the course. That's what this church needs. So that's why. But what is it Paul says? Well, he wants two things to be given to those elders so that that can happen. First, what he calls double honor. This is one of three times Paul uses the word honor about how certain groups of people are to be treated in the church. Widows... Chapter 5, verse 3, are to be honored, those who are in need. And then 6, verse 1, masters are to be honored by their slaves. And here, elders who lead well are to be honored by the church. Now, what does he mean by honor? Well, it's a kind of respect, it's a self-explanatory word, but he means more than just kind of the submission of gritted teeth to a God-given authority. So when you meet the policeman and he stops you and you wind down the window. There's a kind of honor going on. But I think Paul means more than that. Because remember, the church family is a kind of extension of the biological family. And the same word direct here is used in 3 verse 5 of managing the home. So elders are to be valued and held in the same kind of esteem you would the older members of your family. Most societies respect older people. Uh, That is quite normal. And that respect or honor is to be extended to the elders. I think that's all he means really here. 
But what do you mean by double honor? He asked for double honor to be shown to them. Well, what this means becomes clear in verse 18. He wants those elders who are a subset of the eldership, those whose work of leading and teaching is full-time, he wants them to be properly paid. And to make this case, Paul marshals first the authority of the Old Testament, then the authority of Jesus. Deuteronomy 25.4 is a lovely uh, Old Testament passage which refers to the ancient practice of oxen, sort of dragging a sledge over uh, the cut grain. This is pre-combine harvester days, but the oxen is doing the job of the combine harvester, separating the grain, the kernel from the husks. Now, that was hard work for the oxen to do. Pagan cultures, non-Jewish cultures, uh, used to muzzle the ox so they couldn't eat the grain. And Moses says to Israel, you're not to do that. This is a very humane law. You are to allow the ox who is threshing the grain to eat some of the grain while he's working. It's very humane and practical. Look after your ox and he'll look after you. And then in Luke 10, 7, Jesus confirms this and says, the gospel worker, those he's sending out onto the mission field, those involved in the Lord's harvest are to be supported by those who are benefiting from the work. Same principle. They deserve his wages, Jesus says. And so Paul is bringing these two passages together and saying, look, if the ox deserves the wages, if the ox is able to eat, to do their work, then obviously church pastors, missionaries, gospel workers need to be supported for the work that they are doing. But notice that Paul qualifies this in two ways. Firstly, the double honor is due especially, or we could translate that as namely, for those elders who are set apart for the work of preaching and teaching. So he is not making a qualitative distinction between two groups of elders, those who teach and those who lead, as some traditions have historically done, but he's making a quantitative distinction between the elders. That is, all elders are teaching and leading, as chapter 3, verse 2 makes clear, but some will be set apart and freed up for their teaching and leading to make it their primary full-time responsibility. And you can see this in Paul's letters in other parts of the New Testament. And if that is going to happen, if you're going to have people giving themselves full-time to teaching and leading, you're going to have to pay them uh, so they can make it possible. The second qualification is that this applies to those who do it well. Because remember, Timothy's got a problem in the church in, this, in leadership. He's got to do some sifting and sorting, which we'll see in a moment. In other words, elders who are skilled, effective, hardworking, remember that picture of the ox? It's a kind of a hardworking metaphor, isn't it? And faithfully teaching the truth are always at a premium. And Timothy must make sure these kind of people are not only in place, but they are appropriately honored, which includes being paid if the church is to flourish. Now, let's just think this through a little bit for a moment. I suspect that you are as uncomfortable as I am right now talking about these things. Because here am I, a full-time church worker, talking about how to pay properly church workers. Fantastic opportunity. How many of you get that opportunity at work to preach to your employers about how they should pay you? Fantastic. But we're also uncomfortable, I think, because it, it just seems a little bit worldly. And British people, uh, British 
middle class people particularly, I'm afraid, are a little bit snobbish when it comes to talking about money. But we're going to see this again in a moment, that we should never be more spiritual than Paul. Never try. We are often tempted to be more spiritual than Paul on this issue of paying church workers and other uh, issues in the passage. For example, I used to be involved in a mission agency whose kind of, uh, their, their kind of tagline about this was, we don't ask for money, we pay people by faith. People live by faith. Well, it's a lovely idea, but I find, I don't know about you, I find when I'm queuing up in the, in the till uh, at Aldi, um, they always ask me this question. You know, they ask you that question, do you want to pay by cash or card? Those are the two choices. They've never once asked me, do I want to pay by faith? <laughs> you need to be careful. This sounds unspiritual, but it's actually money we need to live on. Gospel workers, missionaries, church staff should be paid properly. And if you want excellent, hardworking people who take their work seriously, who are respected, you will find there is a kind of little virtuous or vicious circle at work. If you recognize them properly, that shows respect, and therefore they will, they will deliver you better work. It's the same principle as the ox. They should be properly paid and not anxious. Now, I'm doing this because it's in the passage. I'm not asking for a pay rise. Instead, I actually want to say thank God in our church for wise and godly trustees and treasurers who do pay our staff properly. Uh, very, very thankful for that. That's a, a tradition going back quite a long way in our church. There's been lots of careful thinking about it. But it's a good principle to think through, isn't it? As we take on future staff, future missionaries, we send people out into the mission field, they need looking after, they need properly paying. That's the first thing Paul says. The second thing elders are to be given is protection against false accusations. Verse 19. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Now again, this rule comes from the Old Testament where two or three witnesses were required to secure a charge for a serious offense. And when it comes to Christian leaders, Paul says an accusation must not be entertained unless it is brought by multiple witnesses whose evidence is open to scrutiny. Now this is very important and it also happens to be very timely in our sort of Christian world and time and place. See, we are very aware, aren't we, all too aware that churches are places where abuse of various kinds can go unchallenged and hidden. We've seen that in the news regularly. The terrible, terrible sexual abuse that has plagued some parts of the Catholic Church, some parts of the Anglican Church and other churches, as well as non-Christian institutions, and has been hidden and not dealt with because people have not done the right thing and sort of come forward and reported it. It's been, it's been hidden, it's been covered up, and this is a terrible, terrible thing. Or you might think of the sort of the accusations of heavy shepherding and cult-like behavior that certain house church movements were accused of in the past. Or more up-to-date and closer to home, you might think of the so-called spiritual abuse charges of over-controlling leadership styles, or perhaps more kind of nebulously the toxic church atmospheres that have come to church more recently. And all of these things, I think, are, are kind of coming to us more and more close to home. Now, these are real issues, and real people have been hurt by them. And I've got no desire uh, this morning to minimize anyone's experience of genuine abuse. 
And this is something we've already mentioned that the elders of the church have been doing some careful thinking about. Uh, We passionately want our church to be a place, a family, where there is not a hint of immorality and where there is not a single accusation of impropriety that could be genuinely leveled against anyone. But even more than that, even more than making sure our safeguarding policies are are right, uh, we want to make sure that we're above reproach in those more nebulous areas of our church culture, our practice, our leadership style, and teamwork. And we want people to know that they can approach any of us, any of the elders at any time, if they think there is something amiss in any of those areas. So it's important to say that before uh, we say the next thing. Because it's also the case that leaders are particularly vulnerable to false accusations. Not only because people are perversely hardwired, I think, to be negative about leaders, um, it does take much more proactive energy, doesn't it, to encourage, to support, to thank uh, leaders. Uh, Just have a think about this in the secular world. Uh, Hands up if you've written to your boss headmaster or MP or local councillor recently thanking them. <laughs> have, you, have you done that? <laughs> a couple of people have. Well, well done. Thank you for doing that. Um, but it's not normal, is it? Uh, when the council fixes the pothole, do we write a letter to thank them? When they don't fix the pothole, <laughs> we write a letter to complain. It is quite natural and, and sort of somehow human. So that's the first thing. We are perversely hardwired to be negative about leaders. But also, leaders are particularly exposed. They particularly expose themselves to criticism. John Calvin says on this verse, None are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. They may perform their duties correctly and conscientiously, yet they would never avoid a thousand criticisms. Or listen to this from Charles Swindoll, a more modern commentator on this verse. He says, To put it brutally, some people are pastor killers. They don't want to be led, they want to lead. First they question the pastor's ability to lead, then they undermine his authority. Eventually, if he persists in telling them what they do not want to hear, they drum up a list of sins and seize upon a convenient accusation to impunge, impugn his moral qualification to lead. So leaders actually need some protection. Now, don't hear me wrong, Lee. I'm not saying we're above criticism. (laughs) I've said all I said before to make that really, really clear. But Paul seems to think that leaders need protection from false criticism. And the honor of protecting elders from false allegations however, raises the question of what to do if the accusations are true. Well, let's look at the next few verses, because the answer is serious and sobering for all concerned. It is to be public, and it's to be fair. Look at verse 20. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly, so the others may take warning. Now, there's no word elders in verse 20. It's just those And it's not so much sin, it's those who are sinning, indicating a persistent, serious problem, presumably having been given time to repent, not just any kind of momentary lapse of judgment. But I do think he is talking about elders here. I think the others are probably the other elders, but it might be the others in church. It's hard to tell from the grammar. 
A public rebuke may seem harsh, and it will certainly be humiliating. But it underlines the public nature of leadership and the leader's role as a teacher of the truth. Leaders' sins particularly damage the church and so need to be publicly dealt with. The church, remember, is on view in the world. And a church that claims a high standard of righteousness must have a high degree of transparency before a watching world because that is always Paul's concern. And this is why leadership sins are particularly serious for the church's reputation and therefore must be dealt with publicly so that everybody can see uh, the transparency and things aren't being hidden and brushed under the carpet. And if the seriousness of the situation has not yet sunk in, look with me at verse 21. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favoritism. This is very strong language indeed. It's as if Paul now puts his pen down and sort of looks at Timothy directly in the eye and he's calling the whole heavenly courtroom, God, Christ and the angels, to hold him accountable to do his duty. Remember, Timothy, the world is watching, but God is watching. Heaven is watching. The angels are watching. Now, why does Paul have to stress this so much? Well, I can think of two very obvious reasons. First, because what he's asking Timothy to do is a very difficult thing. Timothy, who you'll remember is younger than some of the elders, apart from anything else, he is to see that church discipline is carried out without favoritism or partiality. This is a scary thing. How hard it must be for a mere man to pull that off. Remember, Timothy's human. Remember, this is a family. Some of these leaders he has to discipline may well have been his friends, his peers, people on the team, people he's worked with. Others of them might have been intimidating, powerful, persuasive, manipulative. How hard it would be to do this without leniency on one hand, without harshness on the other. How easy would it be to use this as an opportunity for a personal vendetta, for payback, or to win friends? This is a very, very hard thing to do right. and needs a steady and wise hand. And at this point, Timothy's got to remember that, yes, he's human, but heaven is watching on. The second reason, I think, is because of the sheer importance of it. See, why does it matter that this church has good elders who do their work well? Well, because remember what this letter is all about. This is about guarding the gospel. It's interesting that in 1 Timothy 4, Paul uses, sorry, 2 Timothy 4, Paul uses almost identical language to charge Timothy to keep preaching the word. I charge you in the presence of God, Christ, and the angels. Keep preaching the word. Whatever happens, whether people want to listen or not, And it's a very revealing comparison, isn't it, I think? At the end of 1 Timothy, Paul appeals in the presence of God to deal with the elders who are not doing their job properly. And in 2 Timothy 4, Paul appeals to Timothy to keep preaching the word. What is it that Paul wants? Paul wants the word to be heard by the world. He wants the church to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. This is why this is so important. We are humans, 
That means we fail. We make mistakes. We do things wrong. We need correcting. And it's hard to do this. It's painful. It's scary. We are humans, but we, are heaven, we have heaven watching on. That's church life. Sobering, isn't it? Well, given all of that, it would seem wise, wouldn't it, to make sure you appoint leaders carefully in the first place. And that is what he now goes on to, I think, in 22 to 25, preventing gospel damage. Look with me then at verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now, the laying on of hands here is, I think, shorthand in Paul's writing for the recruitment and commissioning of pastors and elders and also others in ministry such as deacons. There are other ways to interpret this, but that's the way uh, I think is right. And you can sort of follow this through in the, in the letters. So I think what Paul is saying here is a general principle in, a, in recruiting and appointing leaders. And I think, therefore, in our context, this applies to team leaders, youth leaders, grub group teachers, ministry trainees, small group leaders, and so on, as well as elders. Now, Paul's advice to Timothy, look, in verse 22, is simply do not be hasty in such appointments. Do not be hasty. That's the advice. There are two concerns Paul has in mind here of equal weight. First, Paul knows how tempting it is to be hasty in appointing leaders. The church in Ephesus has grown very, very quickly. If you look back in Acts 19, you'll see the the way the church formed from this very, very pagan culture, and it's, and it's grown. And as you look at Paul's missionary journeys through the world, as he kind of traveled around the Roman Empire from east to west, as he evangelized, one of the things Paul was always doing was recruiting leaders. He was always scouting for young men and women to serve in churches. Titus, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus. He seemed to have a thing about young men with names beginning with T, but also Gaius and Aristarchus, to mention just a handful. Paul knew that if these churches were to thrive, he, he needed leaders. Needed leaders. And that is always the case in a healthy, growing church. If you're out of Vision Day last week, you will have heard Becky say, we need leaders for our exploding families' work. How many people do we need to kind of manage the ratios of the smallest groups, particularly you may have heard about our English as a second language course starting on Sunday afternoons. And it's, it's really good. It's going really well. But if it's going to grow, it's going to need new leaders. It's going to need extra leaders. You may know about our ministry training scheme. We have vacancies to fill. We'd love to fill them. You may know that for quite a long time we've been talking about appointing new elders. We've discussed this regularly. And so there's always a demand. There's always a need to appoint new leaders. But look at what Paul says. Don't be hasty. Don't be hasty because of sin. That's Paul's first concern. The stakes are too high to get this wrong. Do not make the mistake of appointing the wrong people. But notice that Paul's second concern of equal weight, verse 22, is for Timothy. He wants Timothy to keep himself pure, which is not kind of talking about sexual purity. It's the purity of not being contaminated by making a mistake in leadership appointment. 
doesn't want to share in the sin that will come out through the wrong appointment. Now, the reason for these concerns, he unpacks in 24 to 25. And the point in those two verses is time. People are like icebergs. There is more to them below the surface than you can see. And it's time that brings this out. Verse 24, the sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. In the context of recruiting leaders, this is very practical and perceptive. See, it is easy, isn't it, to look at someone's CV or reference or interview and be taken in. It's easy, actually, isn't it, to write a good CV. And who writes bad references these days? It's easy to talk the talk and even to demonstrate a certain skill set but remember chapter 1 verse 3 uh, sorry chapter 3 it is character that matters in the end there's very little mention of skills in chapter 3 when he talks about elders and deacons but character is everything and it's character that takes time to be revealed you can't really judge someone's character from a cv or a one hour interview now for some people this will be obvious very quickly you know as soon as you look at them that they're, they're not right. They've got flaws. They're going to be difficult. They're going to be a mistake. For others, they can look convincing. And a very long time, much later, when it's too late to present, prevent the damage, a whole load of sin, or perhaps one big sin, is going to come to the surface, as it must eventually. But there is a positive side to this. Look at verse 25. It's the same for good deeds as well. See, some people look very unimpressive. Some people, you look at them and think, well, they're never going to be a Timothy. They're quiet and they're, you know, but... But Paul says, don't overlook them. They might just prove to be gold dust in their quiet, unobtrusive faithfulness. It's very practical, wise advice, isn't it? Which is why our general rule of thumb here when appointing staff is actually to appoint people we know. I don't think we've ever advertised. This is a, a kind of a, not, not a firm, fixed rule that we have. We're never going to advertise for a staff, but I don't think we ever have. We tend to recruit from people we know. It just makes complete sense. And if you look at 3 verse 10 about deacons, he says they must first be tested. This is not a, a capability test. This is not seeing if you can run the PA kit, you're on the team. Now, this is test of character. That's what he's talking about. Now, this is very important, and if you're going to be involved in church leadership or church planting in the future, then learn from this. People often ask me, what is the, well, not often, sometimes, people ask me, what is the single biggest mistake I made in the early days of revitalizing this church? What, is, what, what was the biggest mistake we made? Without doubt, without hesitation, the biggest mistakes we made were all to do with appointing leaders too hastily. Biggest mistake. No question. Save yourself a world of trouble and be patient, but it does take nerves of steel. Which is why, and I, you thought I was going to miss this, but I'll come back to it. Verse 23 makes perfect sense to me. And I think makes perfect sense to anybody who is engaged in the messiness of church leadership. Verse 23, stop drinking only water, use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. 
makes perfect sense. Some people struggle to understand this verse in its context. Most commentators, or some commentators, see it as a digression or perhaps a rebuke to Timothy for falling for the asceticism of the false teachers. But I think that's to misunderstand how kind and practical a man Paul actually is. See, think about everything he's been saying. All this business of silencing the false teachers, sorting out widows, rebuking elders, selecting leaders... If you look at the grammar, as I did with the trainees on, on Friday morning, there are 50, actually 48, nearly 50 imperatives in chapters 4 to 6. 48 commands Paul gives to Timothy. Timothy's got his work cut out. Imagine reading this letter. How stressed would you feel? How traumatic that Paul is asking his friend to do these scary things. And so he gives him, Paul knows Timothy, he knows him really, really well. He knows how this stress will affect his guts. And so verse 23 is a medicinal help. Not that he should turn to the bottle. This is not Dutch courage. Notice the Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to write that word little in there. But leadership does affect your guts. I've talked to at least two pastors this week who are literally sick because of conflict in their church. And I think this just tells us something about Paul. He's practical, he's human, he's kind. I listened to Dick Lucas, a veteran preacher on this verse. He says, we see in this lovely little verse something of the massive sense of the great apostle his great heart for his fellow workers, his awareness that they not only needed good brains but also strong stomachs, his awareness of the great complexity of physical and mental health, and his desire that the man of God should be functioning properly on all cylinders. Isn't that lovely? Because we are human, and heaven is watching on. That's church. Well, this brings us to the third section, promoting the gospel at work. And I think the logic just flows straight on Chapter 6, verse 1. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Now again, we need to be careful that we're not uh, mistaking Paul here. Most modern readers, many modern readers, take offense here and elsewhere in the New Testament because of Paul's apparent acceptance of slavery. They ask, why does... Paul not do what later Christians will do and condemn slavery? Why doesn't he give slaves the green light to rise up against their masters and seek freedom? Wouldn't that be the more Christian thing to do? After all, in chapter 1, verse 10, he mentions slave traders among the list of evil people. He calls it a yoke here, so he's under no illusions. This is a hard life. In Galatians 3.28, he asserts the equality in Christ of all people. So, why this tolerance of slavery? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Firstly, we need to be careful not to read the Bible through the lenses of our current sort of historical situation and fall into the trap of kind of, you know, cult what I call sort of historical cultural imperialism where we kind of critique a past culture for things they couldn't possibly have, have seen. See, there are some huge differences between 
Slavery in the first century and the cruel transatlantic slavery, which was abolished mainly by Christians in the 18th century. It's a very different thing. These slaves were not captured from other cultures and kind of relocated. Actually, most slavery in the first century was a way of avoiding bankruptcy. It was often a voluntary step you took to avoid falling through the very bottom of society into destitution. Slavery came with certain rights and responsibilities. You could reach a high level of responsibility as a slave. And it was deeply embedded in the society. And some would suggest, actually, uh, in case we're feeling self-righteous, that our world today probably has more slavery and worse slavery than in first century Roman society. Now, Paul did, I think, burn the slow-burning fuse, light the slow-burning fuse that would one day lead to the abolition of slavery. But social revolution was not his aim. The second reason is that he has a much more profound revolution in mind. He has a greater sense of freedom to offer slaves. And you can see this in verse 2. Have a look at it. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them, literally slave for them, even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. Now, I think this is where everything I've said in the introduction kind of comes together. So if you've tuned out, then tune back in now. I think this is brilliant. So you remember those circles throughout the letter, the Christian life is being lived through a series of concentric circles. Who you are in your family, in your church family, in your workplace, in the world, with heaven watching. I think what Paul is saying here really is that the Christian slave has been given a revolution in the gospel. The Christian slave has a new heart, a new life. And through that changed heart, is able to work in the slavery. Not by a social revolution, but in such a way that he can freely hold out the gospel to the world in the ordinariness of human life. I think what Paul is doing is something quite brilliant here. It's far, far more radical than a social revolution that gets rid of slavery. He's saying, actually, if you find yourself at the very bottom of the social ladder as a slave, you can actually change the world. Not by rebellion, but by the very reverse. You can slave for your master. Literally, the word is despot. Paul has no illusions here how hard this was. You can be someone in physical and economic bondage, but you're a Christian And therefore, you've got a new attitude, a new heart. You can be truly free. A friend of ours in uh, Sydney, who's uh, recently retired pastor, he had a a prison ministry that he used to exercise over the phone. Prisoners who had been converted used to phone him for these little words of encouragement, these little uh, phone chats. And he used to marvel at the, the ministry that some of these converted prisoners had in the prison. This is what Paul is saying here. Nothing can stop you from being Christian. Nothing can stop you from changing the world. 
you certainly don't need to go and join a monastery. You can be a Christian in prison. You can be a Christian as a slave. Just be human with heaven watching on. Now, chapter 6, verse 1 actually underlines this in a remarkable way. And this is where we'll finish. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. He says, all of this is so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Now, we're getting used to this idea, but this is actually an allusion from Isaiah 52, verse 5, which Paul also quotes in Romans 2, 24. Isaiah 52, 5 and Romans 2, 24, if you're taking notes. He says, God's name is blasphemed among the nations because of you. So, in ancient Israel, in Isaiah's time, God looked at Israel and their ungodly behavior. And he says, because of you, God's name is being blasphemed among the nations. Israel, causing the nations around them to think low thoughts about God. Don't you think it's absolutely stunning that Paul takes that verse and applies it positively to the lowest of the low in society. For the Christian slave working away at their chores, how they behave, whether or not they show masters the respect expected, is not a small matter. It is nothing less than the fulfillment of Israel among the nations, being glory, bringing glory to the God of the universe, where Israel failed, slave, teacher, accountant, plumber, electrician, builder, where Israel failed, in Christ, you can succeed. This means that if you are a worker, you can change the world. You have a role to play in the mission of God, in the workplace. There's no need to go to work feeling mutinous or critical about your boss or the company or your work. And if your boss is a Christian, you can treat them even better. You've been freed inwardly to be different in your language, your integrity, your kindness, your conscientiousness, the promptness with which you pay your suppliers or treat your customers. This is real freedom. This is revolutionary. Well, I think this is a very practical passage. Here is Paul's practical wisdom for life in God's household. Elders must be properly respected and protected and also held to account because the truth is so precious. Future leaders must be chosen very carefully, given time to reveal their true character because sin can ruin everything. And Christian slaves, Christian workers, must be the best they can be because the universe is watching on. This letter is teaching us, isn't it, the crucial importance of the ordinary local church in the plans of God, and we get to play our part with heaven watching on. This is human life, normal, ordinary life, and it takes its various forms. Because indispensable to the world is the gospel. This is what the world needs. God is watching, and he will judge, and he will exonerate, And he will reward in the end.
Just one final thing. You might be somebody who is not a believer, who is watching on, as it were. Well, remember that God is Savior, and salvation comes not by joining a church, but by joining yourself to Christ, the mediator. That's how you get to be part of what God is doing in the world, so that your human life, your short time on this earth, will have an impact not just on the world, but on eternity. So let me invite you to to come in. Join yourself to Christ. Why not do it this morning? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to say sorry for when we take the gospel and the word and your glory in any way lightly. And when we think that our contribution, the way we live in this world, doesn't matter, we pray that you will have encouraged us this morning and rebuked us and helped us to see the truth that the way we live as human beings in your world, as families, as workers, as a church family, really does matter. And we pray that we might be a church well-ordered where human relationships lived out in your sight are pleasing and honoring to you. And we pray that we'd remember that our normal life as creatures and Christians can either help or hinder the mission of the church and promote the gospel in the world. We pray too for anyone here who is watching on and wondering whether this is real, whether Jesus really is Lord, whether you really are Savior. We pray that each person might put their trust in Christ, the mediator, might come to know you as Savior this morning and live their whole life in the light of eternity from now on. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.